Hi, this is Pastor Emily McGinley from Urban Village Church, Hyde Park, Woodlawn. If you've been to UVC, you'll know that we seek to be three things, bold, inclusive, and relevant. We know that there are countless folks across the country and out there in podcast land like yourself, seeking a message that will bring insight, hope, encouragement, and joy as we do this thing called faith. Please consider making a financial gift to help us with this work of inspiring, equipping, and sending out agents of gospel life and inclusive love. Just go to www.urbanvillagechurch.org forward slash give. Thanks for listening, and God bless. Our scripture reading today comes from Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 1 through 7. The prophet Jeremiah sent a letter from Jerusalem to the few surviving elders among the exiles, to the priests and the prophets, and to all the people Nebuchadnezzar had taken to Babylon from Jerusalem. The letter was sent after King Jeconiah, the queen mother, the court officials, the government leaders of Judah and Jerusalem, and the craftsmen and smiths have left Jerusalem. It was delivered to Babylon by Elasa, Shaphan's son, and Jemariah, Hilakiah's son, two men dispatched to Babylon's king Nebuchadnezzar by King Zedekiah. The Lord of heavenly forces, the God of Israel, proclaims to all the exiles, I have carried off from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Cultivate gardens and eat what they produce. Get married and have children. Then help your sons find wives and your daughters find husbands in order that they too may have children. Increase in number there so that you don't dwindle away. Promote the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it because your future depends on its welfare. May God bless our understanding of this reason. Let us pray. Holy God, we thank you so much for this space that you've provided for us, the ways in which you've invited us to this place to uh, share in worship and praise, in discernment, in sharing a common meal. At this time, we add a, pray for a blessing that you add an extra understanding to the scripture and how it might speak to us in this place and this time. In your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So thank you for uh, that scripture reading. So if you ever get asked to read scripture, it's always helpful to uh, look at it. Because if you get an Old Testament text, you might get a bunch of weird names. And uh, it's, uh, it's good. You did a great job, though. Thank you. So um, I, uh, in my previous job, I worked a lot with uh, college students and young adults. And a lot of these part of the work that I did was helping them to discern like what happens next. Uh, what do I do with my life? I want to, you know, I've studied something. I have this desire to help make a difference, to, you know, to help change the world, make it a better place. But then like, you know, they also have to find a job and like uh, interview. And then, you know, those two things don't really go together for a, usually for a first time job out of school. If you wanted like Go and change the world, you have to like join a volunteer program where you don't get paid, uh, or, which is not always a possibility, especially because I worked with a lot of students who you know, didn't have the luxury of uh, taking a year off without getting paid uh, and taking out more loans. So that was a difficult choice. And then uh, the other choice is like to compete for those, you know, that small percentage of jobs where you could work for 
uh, nonprofit and uh, apply some of your skills and uh, do some good in the world. Um, so uh, one of the students I noticed recently had posted uh, this diagram uh, on their board and like how they're going to go about searching for their, what they're going to do after college, right? So, uh, so that red dot in the middle is like the ideal, the, the job that they're looking for that fits in that red dot right there. So if you look at that diagram, first part says, you know, you want to do something that you love, right? A common phrase that we hear about finding our, our job or work in life is to do what you love and love what you do. So you love it. Um, second part is the world needs it. You are paid for it, and you are great at it. And at this nexus of these four things, you're going to find your purpose in life. Um, actually, I was probably like similar to this student in trying to find this kind of work after college myself. And uh, to be honest, this chart will usually lead to existential crisis and disappointment. <laughs> and. Uh, and a yearning, and it might even, you know, it kind of led me to seminary even. So, uh, <laughs> so just be careful when you try to follow this. Now, I, I, I think there's a lot of good that this diagram can say about how God might be calling us. And specifically, uh, I believe the caption on this, which got cut off, is, you know you're doing the right thing in your life when, dot, 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 or uh, another caption was, you know God, you're doing what God has called you to do, dot, 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 uh, when all of these things come together. But for those of us have, that have struggled, that have tried to at least find our way into these things, we know that it's uh, getting to that center point is uh, an almost impossible task. So, um, you know, some of the students that I've worked with that go on to these year-long service programs uh, or try to like make a difference in the world and then can't find a job doing it often get disillusioned um, and and feel that there's really no way to like find this perfect purpose where all of these things come together so um, eventually you know you, you have to like pay the bills and get on with your life and um, so you just kind of settle into the the economy that the, the world presents to you, um, which is, you know, you find the job that you get, and then you just kind of make a career out of it, and uh, or you go to grad school and incur a bit more debt, and then try to uh, readjust and reset again. But I come from an immigrant family, and if you ask most first-generation immigrants, whether they come from another country or they've moved from another space, whether uh, through the migration from south to north. This diagram that I just, that was up there is a bunch of crap. They'll, they'll tell you that's just like, you're like deluding yourself, like it's, that's silly, that's not even what God wants for you. Um, because part of, you know, my parents' generation of immigrants, what they'll tell you is that they're, what they do for work, what they do for their job or their career, is not aligned necessarily with their life purpose. They come with a sense of purpose, and then like, they do whatever work they can to uh, fulfill that purpose, rather than like, 
finding this perfect place where my job and my career have to perfectly align with what God has called me to do in this world where I love it, I'm good at it, I get paid for it, and uh, I forgot what the other one, and the world needs it. Um, those things aren't, that's not the, uh, the math that goes into um, living and finding into their purpose. Uh, if you were to ask my mom, like, what was your purpose in life, especially after my dad had passed away when I was young, it was to survive. It was to help my sister and me survive and hopefully make a better life for ourselves and to give us a bit more choices so then maybe we could go through that existential crisis out there of trying to find that work. But my mom had a very clear purpose in life, which was very helpful for her in surviving a very menial, uh, low-wage factory job for her life. And I didn't realize like how menial and factor like low wage my mom's job was until I filled out my FAFSA, and I realized that we were like barely like above the poverty line, um, and I didn't realize that. But because in part I was kind of surrounded by a community that protected me from the uh, kind of the the pitfalls of being in uh, a very low wage income home. But my mom was able to live with purpose, to make little surgical needles and surgical tubes day in, day out. She's probably made millions of them. Um, some of you might have utilized them uh, while you were at the hospital. But that's what she did with her life, was make little surgical tubes and little surgical needles. She did that for 25 years. And to be honest, you can kind of find meaning and purpose in that work itself if you kind of think, oh, this is going to help somebody's uh, you know, life out later on in life, right? But the reality is, is anybody could have done that job. And so they did, she only worked for 25 years doing that job because they decided it was cheaper to have someone else do it uh, offshore. And then pretty soon it's probably a job that will be done by robots. So that's a bit of what it's like to go through that immigrant experience, or anybody who's trying to survive, not just immigrants, but anyone that is in the business of survival, of trying to make a better life, and that their primary commitment is to the people that they love, that they do whatever they can to make a life for the people that they love. Which brings us to our text in Jeremiah today. So uh, the book of Jeremiah, just to give you a little bit of a background about the book of Jeremiah, it's written by a guy named Jeremiah um, uh, who was living at the time when uh, a bunch of people in Israel went to exile and uh, the kingdom of Judah was about to be like destroyed. Um, so the kingdom of Judah is like the main you know, Jewish kingdom uh, that was still in existence at that time. And Jeremiah is writing to, in this part of the scripture, is writing to the people that were exiled in Babylon. And what he writes, if we can go back to the scripture passage, these exiles who, um, eh, 
at the time, yeah, it's, it's the, if you can go to the next uh, page. That next. Actually, sorry, the first one, yeah. <laughs> so these are all people who were, had standing in, uh, in Jerusalem. Um, these are people who had professions who were um, pre, uh, priests and prophets and artisans um, uh, and uh, people who had professions, who had like a sense of purpose and meaning in their home country. But now they're taken to Babylon. And at this time, what Jeremiah is asking in this passage to do is stay there. Like, commit to this place, become immigrants in this place. Because what these exiles were probably hoping for is that one day that, one day in the very near future, that they were hoping that they get to go back home, that their purpose in life is to go back home. But in this scripture, in this scripture passage, Jeremiah is writing a letter to them saying, stay and commit to this place. Build homes, build a community, thrive. Build fam may have families, commit to this place. Let the welfare of this city be tied up into your welfare as well. Now, I'm kind of like kind of imagine, you know, imagining and reading things into this, but I think that at this letter is asking these people that were exiled to change their status from being exiles, people who are constantly dreaming of going somewhere else, that their purpose lies in another place, in another time, in another land, and to change that status to committing to a particular place where they don't have status, where they might have to take on a different profession, where they might have to find meaning beyond the work that they thought that they were going to devote their lives, lifetimes to doing. In this passage, we see people go from exiles to immigrants. And in this request for, from Jeremiah for these people to become immigrants, Jeremiah is asking these people to become a community. Don't become this exiled people that are going to go back, but to become a people whose purpose is in becoming committed to each other, committed to their place, committed to their city. Now, in... In Christian language, we might call this covenanting, making a covenant with each other. For when we look at what the work that God does with us, God's work with us, with humanity, begins in this idea of forming covenants. It doesn't begin with this idea of what specifically am I supposed to do, God's work with humanity, God's work with us, begins in God's commitment to us. God's work of salvation, God's work of redemption, God's work of reconciliation, all of that begins with God's commitment to us. God saying, I am your God, you will be my people. That is the beginning place of God's purpose in relating to humanity. Everything that God does 
begins in that idea of God's commitment to us. And I believe that God, through Jeremiah, is asking the people that are exiled in Babylon to do the same. That rather than going through an existential crisis of who am I, where, who am I in the world, what am I supposed to do, when am I going home, God is saying to commit to one another and commit to the place where you are. Our work and our purpose doesn't begin with that Venn diagram as Christians. That Venn diagram is maybe an eschatological ideal where one day, like in the future, like all of these things can align and we can get to that. Or maybe like it won't even happen until we get to like some heavenly place. No, our work and our purpose begins in a place of committing, of covenanting, of deciding to be loyal to people and to places where we are, not where we, where we hope to be, but where we currently are now. So this idea of covenanting, to commit to one another, to find our purpose, not in necessarily what jobs or careers that we have, but finding our purpose in the people that we are with, the people that we are committed to, and then like finding out how best we can do serve them, is that the, the, the very hard thing about this idea of covenanting is it's so countercultural that it really requires a different way of thinking about things. So I'm going to go through some reasons why covenanting is a really bad idea for your life and your career. Um, one, covenanting is just, it's like really hard and messy, right? So let's talk about God. Like God, when God commits and makes a covenant with people, God gets like immediately frustrated in the Bible, right? So much so that like, you know, God like wipes out like people because he's like, I'm going to hit the reset button because these people are really wicked and violent and I dislike them. So, you know, I'm going to hit the reset button and start over. But then God hits the reset button with Noah and things kind of fall back into the same place. But God promises not to do that again. So now he's stuck with these messy people that God has committed God's self to. Covenanting is not efficient, right? So part of what we want uh, in when we want to find our, like meaningful work or like to do work well is to be efficient, to do it well, to like find a clear goal and a purpose and to like find a straight line to it. But Covenanting kind of changes all of those plans and like it's incredibly inefficient, right? So contrast like what the Bible says about God. God is loving, God is faithful, God is committed, God uh, is gracious, God is just. But it doesn't say God is efficient, you know, God, uh, God like, you know, hits the profit margins just right or uh, God, does what's always ideal. No, the, the language that we hear about the way God works is more about God's commitment to us. But when it relates to our lives, the biggest thing about co covenanting that makes it so hard is it goes against building necessarily our 
careers and our consumeristic tendencies. So if your main life goal in life is to have a particular career that you imagine that you're having, that you want to do a specific thing and build towards and achieve some status doing and meaning in your work, building, making covenants stands in the way of that, right? Whether you have kids or you get married or you decide you're committed to your, uh, your birth family or any of those things, right, those things constrain your choices, right? If your spouse wants to live in one place and you need to go to another place or like someone doesn't want to move or your kids are, uh, you're thinking about your kids and what's best for them, all of those things constrain our choices. So covenanting with people always limits our career choices because we value people over like our career. Or it also goes against this tendency towards con consumption and consumerism, right? So if you are to covenant with a particular people, but you, you, know, you want to buy a bigger, like let's say you're really committed to this community, right? But you want to live in a bigger house, and the only bigger house you can afford is like, like an hour away. You, you, know, you drive till you qualify, you know? It's like, uh, then that pulls you further away from that community, or your choice to, um, so many of our choices that we make as consumers also stand in the way of our covenanting. But also, the reality of the job market makes it really hard to covenant. Whether or not it's about careerism or not, like if you want to just live, let's say, in this neighborhood, because we all know what's happening in these neighborhoods. They're gentrifying. It's getting more and more expensive to live. If you're living in a studio, but then you have a family and you can't live in a studio anymore, um, what do you do if the market doesn't give you any options to live in that neighborhood anymore? Covenanting while it sounds good and sounds easy, and we make covenants all the time at this church. Selah was baptized here not too long ago. Benjamin was baptized here. We've had several baptisms here, and mo a lot of you were here and promised that you would like, really like, commit to the welfare and their upbringing. But covenanting is work. Covenanting isn't just a promise we make or feeling like liturgically good about what has happened and some conceptual way of seeing the way God is working. Covenanting is work. If something were to happen to me and Emily, then you guys are stuck with Selah. And, uh, and then that's work. Um, if Carolyn and Mike are having a, like, they're going through stuff and they're really, like, something happens and they have to focus on that, then somebody has to pick up the slack. That covenanting is work. Or just checking up on them is work, seeing how people are doing. But it's not just the covenants that you made with Selah and Benjamin, but it's as baptized persons, covenanting is what you do for each other. And that's hard. To commit to one another is hard. 
because it constantly constrains our choices that we make about our work and our careers and how we want to spend our time and how we want to spend our money. So that's why we shouldn't covenant. <laughs> but it's also the reason why we covenant. If we really believe in the God that's committed to us, that is committed to our salvation, that's committed to our redemption, that's committed to our reconciliation, then our response to God is to do the same. It's to commit to one another, not just conceptually, not just to check up with a phone call, but it's to be in and occupy spaces together, to stay together. It's place-based. You know, one of the difficult things that I see about Urban Village, that's, I, I think we're a little more immune to it here at Hyde Park Woodlawn than the other sites, is that, um, is that as we're trying to build this community that's like committed to like justice and like igniting this change for the city and all this stuff, is like people keep leaving. Not just like leaving for another church, but like, like leaving the entire city, like constantly moving, right? So the turnover rate, I think, uh, according to the census statistics in like Wicker Park, which is where one of our largest site is, the average length of stay in Wicker Park for residents is eight months. So on average, that's not, just, that's not just the church, that's like the entire neighborhood. People stick around in that neighborhood, live in that neighborhood for eight months, and then they go, right? So, and you know, to get into a little bit more policy specifics, that's why gentrification happens. Right? That's one of the main drivers of gentrification is like people want to live there, but people don't stick around. So then you know, every time someone leaves, it, you know, it's another reason to make, drive up the prices and make things um, more palatable to some people and to drive some people out. Right? That kind of dynamic is constantly occurring around us. And that's... That's the culture of, I don't know, most of the generations of people that are here, right? Is this, uh, in, in order to try to find meaningful work, in order to find careers, in order to secure even a good place for our specific families, we have to constantly be moving around. And what gets left behind are the relationships to other people that we have committed to, right? And I believe that, sincerely believe that that's one of the reasons why like, young people don't even vote, right? So I've noticed recently that a lot of, uh, a lot of people like, want to uh, uh, recall our, some of our elected officials, right? Um, but the voter turnout for that elected, those elected officials was like dismal, right? So there's way more people that want to like kick him out. Um, I wasn't going to even use gender, but kick this person out. <laughs> but then who actually like, you know, voted in that election that elected this person. So, but part of that is, is like it's hard to get involved in local politics if you've not stayed in a place and don't have a sense of how 
all of those local dynamics affect what's going on in the specific place that you're in. I mean, I've lived here for nine, ten years now in Hyde Park, in the, like the same like little like voting district. It's only like recently where I like really st have an understanding of what like stuff happens nationally, like politically, locally, um, like state government-wise, and even all, on the aldermanic level, how those things like affect the street that I live on. Right? How the TIF money is causing all of these things to like happen right on my street, why I can't park there sometimes. Like those connections I am like just starting to make. And it's because I've, but it took like nine years, nine, ten years for that understanding to happen. Right? I'm actually very specific in like my ask in my sermon today is, one of the most radical things I believe that we can do as Christians, one is really commit to each other. But not just like this vague sense of I'm committed to the church, I'm committed to all Christians, because that's important to have liturgically, that our church is bigger than this, that we are committed to more people than this, that we're committed to everyone outside in the world and stuff. But another radical thing to do is to commit to this place in this time, and I would like every one of you to consider making those commitments and choices like Jeremiah has asked the exiles to do as well. Don't just be here. Don't just be like on the south side of Chicago because uh, you're stopping by because you're a college student. Don't just be here because you're in your starter job or your starter home. Be here. Even if you do leave one day. God does give hope to these exiles that in 70 years that they'll get to leave, which probably means most of them are dead. Um, <laughs> but he does, give that, he does give that glimmer of hope. I'm not saying that you're stuck here, right? But even if you're only here for a short while, be here as if you're going to be here for 70 years. Because like, we can commit to things like national movements like Black Lives Matter or like fighting uh, for like public education policy or gentrification. But all of those things have very local consequences. And that's where those movements really touch place and people. So it's one thing to like commit yourself to like anti-racism and dismantling privilege. But it's another thing to commit to specific people and relationships and living that out. It's another thing to like, let your life be disrupted and to be bothered and the direction of your life to change based on your commitments to people. Now, the reality is, is some of you will get pushed out or some of you will need to go, but live here now as if you're gonna stay forever. Live here now as if you're gonna die, and these people's lives are all the lives that you've got in terms of how they affect you. Let the welfare of the people in this place, in this place here, in this place immediately out there, let their welfare be tied up in your welfare. God's work is in this. Our work in God is in this. I don't know what that means for you, 
One of the other reasons why you shouldn't covenant, because it's going to lead to you not being happy all the time, right? Um, like study after study shows that getting married and having kids is a really bad idea for your general sense of happiness. Um, and I actually, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna keep it real. Like covenanting is bad for your general sense of happiness. Because when you get involved in someone's life, it gets messy. When you have a kid, yeah, like, it's like incredible joy when you have this baby. But when you, like, have, like, you're on your third week of only getting sleep in one and a half hour spurts, you're not happy. Yeah. Um, when the things that you thought were cute about your spouse are, like, really annoying, become really annoying, it's not happy. When people let you down, you're not happy. Or when you screw up even though you're trying to do your best and it's not always received well, you're not happy. So, but this sermon series is called How to Find Joy in Work, right? <laughs> so then we, part of this prophetic consciousness that Jeremiah is asking us into is to rethink what it means to be joyful. If happiness is tied up in feeling good, or if it's tied up in getting everything we want, then covenanting is a bad idea. Committing is a bad idea. Go out and you know, live your life, you know, look out for number one, and go on and do that. But if you're committed, then your joy has to be in, tied up in the welfare of others. Your joy has to be found in the joy of others, in, in the struggle. Joy and joy needs to be found in the struggle of covenanting. So for the last minute, I know I've gone a little over time, I'd like you to ponder. What are the commitments that you've already made in this place? What are the commitments that you need to make in this place? To whom? How do you live that out? What does it mean for your career, your job, your family, your hopes, your dreams? How does each other's presence affect the way you live? May God disrupt your life but know that God is committed to your life at the same time.